From Maine Public Radio and mainepublic.org, I'm Carol Bousquet with the news on this day in Maine, Friday, March 10th, 2023. This day in Maine is made possible by listeners and by Now You're Cooking. Celebrating 23 years of selling cookware, kitchen tools, gadgets, and fine wine on historic Front Street in downtown Bath. Open seven days a week. And by Eastern Basements, a division of Maine-owned Eastern Mold Remediation, offering basement waterproofing solutions. EasternBasements.com. Family members of a three-year-old girl who died after ingesting her mother's drugs say Maine's Child Welfare Agency repeatedly disregarded their warnings and should have taken the child from her mother's custody. Had the state or DHHS just called us, listened to us, helped us, done anything different, not closed this case so quickly, she would still be alive today. That's Allison Porter of Lincoln, who was the great-aunt of Haley Goding. The three-year-old died in a Bangor hospital in June 2021 of an apparent fentanyl overdose. It was the second time Haley had been taken to the hospital for fentanyl exposure. And Porter told state lawmakers on Friday that the Department of Health and Human Services was repeatedly warned that Haley's mother, Hillary Goding, had a drug problem. Last month, a legislative watchdog agency said it did not find any major faults in how DHHS responded to the multiple concerns raised about Hillary's care for her daughter. But Haley's grandfather, Brian Picciano, says it should have been immediately clear to DHHS that there was a problem when both the mother and daughter tested positive for drugs on the day that Haley was born. DHS never informed or talked to us about options of taking Haley Ann. We even offered to take Haley, and they says as long as Hillary does her program and shows that she's clean, they have no right to or take it to court to say that there's a problem. Hillary Goding pled guilty to manslaughter and her daughter's death and is serving a 19-year jail sentence. Residents of the towns of Warren and Union are mobilizing to fight a Canadian company's plans to explore for possible mineral deposits of nickel, copper, and cobalt in and around Crawford Pond. Last month, Exiro Mineral Corp. briefed local select boards and residents to explain how they'll survey the area from the air using electromagnetic equipment. Since then, word about the project has spread, and last Thursday, nearly 200 people turned out at the Masonic Lodge in Union to discuss how they might prevent the company from moving ahead. Captain James Harkins has a home on Crawford Pond. It's kind of scary because, uh, you know, I just recently retired. We've been working on our lake home for 17 years. We finally got it the way we want it. We've got a substantial financial investment. And now we're looking at the possibility of a huge financial impact from this mining company with absolutely no recourse to us at all. Exiro did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Residents successfully fought a similar mining proposal in the 1990s. This time, opponents are hoping to ban industrial-scale mining through revised local ordinances that could be put before voters at upcoming town meetings. Proponents of a referendum question to replace CMP and Versant with a nonprofit power company won a court victory over the wording of the question on Thursday. In drafting the referendum, Maine's Secretary of State described the proposed power company as quasi-governmental. 
but several supporters challenged that description. They argued the term quasi-governmental is unclear and misleading. The court agreed and remanded the case to the Secretary of State to revise the wording. Senator Rick Bennett, a Republican from Oxford, co-sponsored the legislation, which was vetoed by Governor Mills. He's pleased with the court's decision. I would like to see the word quasi-governmental removed because it doesn't describe the entity at all that would be created. I think consumer-owned is much more appropriate. The court did not rule on whether consumer-owned is the appropriate phrase, but Bennett said he hopes that phrase will be included on the ballot question. Small radio stations in Maine provide entertainment, but also news, weather, and other important information for free. But a bill known as the American Music Fairness Act aims to charge radio stations fees for playing music. In response, Maine's congressional delegation has countered with the Local Radio Freedom Act, which asks Congress not to impose fees on small radio stations that cannot afford them. Tim Moore, president of the Maine Association of Broadcasters, says music labels say they want to help artists with those fees, but the result would be fewer stations playing those artists' music. The very thing that's intended to help artists out, purportedly, may cause there to be fewer outlets for music and those artists that are looking to break through and to be noticed and be exposed to the public uh, they'll get fewer chances to do that so it really it's it's counterproductive in a lot of in a lot of different ways moore says most radio stations in maine operate barely in the black and new fees would force them to stop playing music and rely on free content such as talk shows It's now time for Maine's Political Pulse, our weekly analysis of politics and government. I'm Erwin Gratz, along with State House Bureau Chief Steve Missler and political reporter Kevin Miller. The U.S. has had a fraught relationship with the Native American tribes who inhabited this land before European settlement. But Maine state government's relationship to this state's tribes has been complicated by terms of a settlement agreement that resolved an Indian land claim some 40 years ago. It limited tribal sovereignty, something the Wabanaki have been trying to win back. Kevin Miller, what's the latest on this front? So there are actually two developments, I think, that are worth noting. The first is that next Thursday, all five tribal chiefs in Maine are scheduled to deliver a joint address to the full legislature. This hasn't happened to the state house in in about 20 years. And I'd say this is another uh, very clear sign of some of the healing that's occurred uh, to the state and tribal relationship that was pretty much in tatters not that long ago. Now, that push to completely overhaul that 1980 agreement, that's still ongoing. But it was just eight years ago that the Passamaquoddy and the Penobscot tribes actually withdrew their representatives from the legislature because relations had just gotten so bad with the state. But now we're going to have we're going to see the Penobscot, the Passamaquoddy chiefs, as well as the chiefs from the Maliseet and the Mi'kmaq communities. They'll be participating in the state of the tribes address. So that's significant. But at the same time, we saw this week the tensions or the disagreements between the tribes and and, uh, Governor Janet Mills administration. They're still around. You know, despite what both sides say is is pretty solid progress, this particular dispute centered around a proposed constitutional amendment to resume printing a section of Maine's constitution that refers back to the state's obligations to honor treaties with the tribes back when Maine separated from Massachusetts in uh, 1820. That section of the Constitution remains in effect, but for reasons that really aren't clear based on the historical record, they were expunged from the printed editions of the Constitution. 
This proposal would resume printing those sections. It was strongly supported by the tribes and Attorney General Aaron Fry and Secretary of State Shannon Bellows, but the Mills administration came out very strongly in opposition. They called it, quote, a misguided attempt to right a historic wrong that never occurred. And namely, that's it's this contention that the section was admitted to somehow evade or obfuscate Maine's treaty obligations. And Governor Mills' chief legal counsel said restoring that language would, quote, perpetuate that baseless theory. So, you know, it, it's pretty clear that Governor Mills is out of step with the tribes, but as well as with her Democratic leadership on this point. The COVID pandemic has not gone away. Uh, Maine has seen an uptick in hospitalizations in recent weeks and a debate over the pandemic's origin heated up again this week. Steve Missler, Maine Susan Collins featured prominently in this debate. She was featured, Erwin, because she was an example of Republicans embracing this theory that COVID-19 was leaked from a lab in Wuhan, China. Now, discussions around the so-called lab leak theory have intensified recently because there's a division among U.S. intelligence agencies about the origins of COVID. The FBI, for example, believes with, quote unquote, moderate confidence that COVID came from a lab. The Energy Department recently changed its assessment to align with that view, although it was based on different factors. But four other agencies are aligning with the other theory that COVID was spread naturally from animals to humans via a market in Wuhan. And Senator Collins appeared quite skeptical of the latter view when she questioned uh, Avril Haines, the director of U.S. intelligence this week. I just don't understand why you continue to maintain on behalf of the intelligence community that these are two equally plausible explanations. They simply are not. Haynes responded by saying that one of the reasons why it's been so difficult to settle one of these two COVID origin theories is because China is not cooperating in the investigation. That lack of cooperation appears to be one of the reasons Senator Collins is leaning toward the lab leak theory. She basically says that they wouldn't do that if they didn't have anything to hide. But Haynes is saying that there's still divisions among intelligence agencies. Now, I should note that virologists are less divided about COVID's origins. The majority of them believe that COVID was transmitted from animals to humans late in 2019. As the Ukraine war enters its second year, there are signs of weakening support for the Ukrainian struggle here in Maine. Steve, tell us how we're noticing that. We're certainly seeing it among Republican state lawmakers, Erwin, whether that drop off in support is representative of the Maine population writ large is not quite clear. But this week, it was certainly evident during a debate over a resolution expressing support for Ukraine in the Maine House, and to a far lesser extent, the debate over the same resolution in the Maine Senate. Now, the resolution passed, but there was a stark division among Republicans. Most of them in the House opposed the resolution, which they described as a as war propaganda, all while framing Russia's invasion as a European problem and U.S. intervention as potentially provoking a military confrontation with Russia. This kind of rhetoric is pretty common in right-wing media, which has been hammering uh, U.S. support for Ukraine on a pretty regular basis for some time now, and it seems to be having an effect. I mean, last year, just two House members opposed a resolution supporting Ukraine. It's very similar to the one that was discussed and debated this week. This year, 54 members did, and all but one of them was a Republican. So what this means is a bit unclear, but it suggests waning support for U.S. aid to Ukraine 
And as we learned from U.S. intelligence officials this week, Russian uh, President Vladimir Putin is counting on that diminished support. They believe that Putin doesn't mind letting the war drag on, especially if the U.S. decreases the shipment of military aid to Ukraine. Republicans continue to push for steps that they say will reduce the likelihood of election fraud in Maine, though there's little evidence that Maine experiences any election fraud. Kevin, what are the latest GOP proposals? The the proposal they seem to be pushing the hardest is to require voters to show a photo ID before they can cast their ballots. And this has been a Republican priority for uh, well over a decade, but it's always been defeated largely by Democrats because they argue this would potentially disenfranchise people who don't have a state-issued photo ID, such as senior citizens who don't drive anymore or people living in more urban areas who don't need a car. But there are now 37 states that have some sort of voter ID law on the books. So, So Maine is an outlier at this point. And Republicans, such as Augusta Senator Matt Pouliot, uh, they say there's there's no reason to not implement this to cut down on potential voter fraud. Uh, but they also have a bunch of bills related to absentee ballots that will probably get a lot of attention because this has was already a popular way to vote here in Maine, even before the pandemic. Republicans say these changes are needed to restore voter confidence in our election integrity. But many Democrats and, and even some Republicans argue that President Trump and his close allies are pretty much squarely to blame for any decline in voter confidence because they're the ones that have been making these false claims about stolen elections and voter fraud for years now. And you know those claims have pretty much all been debunked and dismissed by courts across the country for lack of evidence. Kevin Miller, and that's Maine's Political Pulse for this week. I'm Erwin Gratz, Maine Public Radio News. And that's today's main news. For more stories, visit mainpublic.org and join us for Weekend Edition Saturday, tomorrow morning at 8. I'm Carol Bousquet. Thanks for listening.